This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello, welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. My name is Tom Marvin, Senior Technical Editor here at BikeRadar.com and at MBUK magazine as well. In this episode of the podcast, we delve into the world of waterproof fabrics with a trio of industry expert guests. The main focus of our discussion is to understand waterproof fabrics, how they work, what they're made from, and changes in legislation that are going to directly impact on the waterproofs we'll be buying in the future. We also look at how waterproof garments are designed and how best to look after your investment. So today, my three guests are, we have Charles Ross, is a self-confessed textile geek and lecturer and specialist of performance sportswear design at the Royal College of Art. We also have Tim Wilson, Managing Director at Stormcare. They make a range of care products for waterproof materials and garments, including a one-wash cycle, cleaner and waterproofer. We also have Thomas Plummer, who's the head of apparel at Madison, who obviously make a large range of cycling kit. So hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Hi, Tom. Hi. Hey, Tom. Okay, so to start off this podcast, we're actually going to do a bit of a quick fire jargon buster just to make sure that when we're having discussions later on in this podcast, everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. So we're going to cover off six different phrases that quite often appear when we're talking about waterproof fabrics. Um, so, Tim, if it's okay, I'm going to come to you with our first two. So the first is two and a half or three layer fabrics, um, often described as 2.5L or 3L fabrics in a product spec list. What do we mean by that? Well, I would have said that actually Charles was your best man for that <laughs> because uh, I think that's right up his street. Well, if I start, Tim, and then I'll pass one to you. We base it off a three layer fabric. And what we mean by a three-layer fabric is that we have this specialized membrane in the middle. And if you've ever bought white plumber's tape to join together bits of a radiator, it's a very soft tape that you can rub away with your fingers. That's very similar to what a membrane material is. So you need to protect it on the outside and the inside. And by offering that protection, it means that the membrane's not going to be worn away. We then glue them all together, and we're in a constant battle of how much glue to use. If you use too much glue, you stop the permeability, so you stop the moisture moving out. If you don't use enough glue, or if you keep on flexing the material for too long the layers will actually separate. When they separate, 
the membrane will wear out reasonably fast and you will not have a waterproof garment. So a three-layer garment is where you have a, what appears to be a single material, but it's a membrane sandwiched between two protective materials. A two-and-a-half-layer fabric is where you have your outer protector, you have your membrane, and then you might have something like a screen print on the inside offering some form of um, protection. There's also an extra bit. Occasionally you get two-layer, but two-layer garments where you get the protective shell on the outside, the membrane, needs something on the inside like insulation. So if you've got polyester wadding or down, and that protects the membrane on the inside. So, Tim, back to you. Yeah, I would say actually to add to that, that not only is it something that a plumber would use, it's in medical use too. Mm-hmm. And it's used for replacement arteries. And it's um, very technical in the way that it, we, we've come to learn that it breathes one way and yet it repels the other way. And so that's really where the garment performance is coming from. You, you, you sort of you mentioned DWR briefly. Yes. And actually, DWR is an external, this is an internal. So, completely different items doing different jobs both critical to the performance of the garment and charles is just going to talk over tim to add to tim to add to the confusion the membrane is a waterproof barrier people get very confused that the dwr does fail after an extended period of time it gets contaminated or something and they think because it's no longer got that teflon finish with the water running off people believe their garment is no longer waterproof i'd say on 95 percent of times that garment is waterproof but it's what we call wetted out. There's a surface of water on on the outer layer of the fabric, and that is stopping the permeability. So it's stopping the moisture vapor escaping from the body to the outside environment. And people start to feel clammier. Now, if you're as old as Tim and I, when we first went into the outdoors, <laughs> we used PU nylon that did not permeate yeah. at all. And you really did get wet on the inside. But I have teenage kids, so does Tim, actually. And one mark of, of how things have improved is that our kids, for instance, have never rid- ridden a bicycle without front suspension. Tim and I never had a bicycle and with front suspension until we were firmly in middle age. So what I'm trying <laughs> to express here is when the garment's permeability sinks down, people feel clammier on the inside. They think the garment's leaking, but actually you're just feeling more of your own perspiration. And have I now set the bar for how much of a textile nerd I'm going to sound in this conversation? <laughs> I think I think we get an impression. <laughs> if I could interject there, we can we can make a comparison. Actually, believe it or not, with clothing and the building industry, because they look at moisture, which is condensation on a wall, and they look at rain, which is coming through the wall. And the way they check it is, you get a piece of foil, cooking foil, and stick it on a wall, and whichever side that gets wet, that's the way your water's going. Huh. And it's the same thing that we have in the garment. 
just dictating which way the water is going, whether it's travelling through or not. And and that's the critical thing, really. Okay. Well, um, we have mentioned DWR once or twice, so maybe this is your sort of area of expertise, Tim. What is DWR and why does it matter? Well, firstly, you've got the membrane, which is, as Charles says, it's the waterproofing finish. The textile, if you only made it with, as it is, it's like that, as soon as you put your jacket on and it rained, it would get wet. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't, but it would. You'd actually get cold because that's the other thing. As soon as the outer fabric gets wet, it not only blocks the breathability, but it's like picking a pan up out of the oven with a wet cloth. You can't hold it. And similarly, your body heat goes. So when you're cycling, you're actually losing body heat very quickly as the wind breaks into your body. So to keep a keep a, a DWR, a durable water repellent, being the critical word, the chemical on the outside, is critical to having the water bead up and roll off. Otherwise, as Charles said, you get the term we call wetting out. Okay. And DWRs are any liquid that can be applied to a textile that gives a repellent finish. And each one of those products can give a slightly different repellent finish. Similarly, every liquid has a different way of attaching to a fibre. So it could be an oil, it could be mayonnaise, it could be whatever, if you've had a sandwich, or you can you can literally um, uh, sort of, well, blood, for instance, is, is a perfect one. Oil. All these have different levels of water repellency and oil repellency. And the greater the proofing, the better repellency we get and the better breathability we get. Okay. So I think later on we are going to talk about how to look for your, look after your waterproofs. And obviously this is where, you know, Stormcare's expertise potentially will come in again um, because you need to presumably then keep your fabrics clean and your DWR coating active and working. So we will talk about that down the line. Okay, so to sort of finish off our little bit of jargon, Buster, I'll I'll come to you, Thomas. Breathability and breathability ratings and waterproof ratings. Now, obviously, when we buy, you know, a Madison jacket or a pair of trousers or whatever it is, we see these numbers, you know, 20,000, 30,000, which, you know, it all sounds very impressive. Um, But what does it actually mean? And how much does it really matter? Um, I think it, it's a good question. How much does it matter? I think depends on what you're going to go and do with it to some degree. I think to cover breathability, in some ways it's a slightly misleading term because the typical way in which most waterproof garments are made, if you made a bag out of that and put it over your head, you'd suffocate because you can't breathe through it. Um, that what What it's describing is the fact that uh, moisture vapor can basically pass through it, but um, and that's what we that's what we're talking about specifically in terms of breathability. There are a lot of different ways to measure breathability, and the there are actually a lot of diff- even though there's generally one number that the outdoor industry and the cycle industry and the sort of ski industry quote. They're using probably the test that Gore-Tex came up with, um, which is one way to measure breathability. But there are a lot of different ways to measure breathability. um, And a lot of it depends on the conditions. So I think sort of uh, Charles and Tim touched on this earlier, but the actual membrane. So if you forget about the fabric either side on the two layer or the three layer, we've just got one layer and we've got the membrane. 
the membrane doesn't really care which way round is the inside or the outside of the garment. Okay. It, it's not bothered. So what it relies on is a partial pressure. So what that means is that it's hotter and wetter on one side of the garment and generally colder and drier on the other side. And there are different ways in which this happens, but essentially moisture goes from one side of it to the other. Um, and that's what we're measuring in terms of breathability ratings. So it's worth knowing which test is used, um, but it's also worth knowing, knowing which test is actually used. But it's also worth knowing um, what the what the actual rating uh, relates to in terms of those tests, because there are some where you could have a number like 13 and some way you could have a number like 35,000. Right. And they, they all mean totally different things. So that mm. sort of breathability. Um, and actually, talking about the, the fact the membrane doesn't care which way around it goes, there's an incident in the ski world where there was heated um, seats on ski lifts. People were complaining that their Gore-Tex kind of ski trousers were leaking. But actually, they were just sat on snow, sat on a heated seat. So it was uh wetter and warmer on the outside of the garment than the inside so its membrane is basically pumping moisture the wrong way through the garment so right, okay that's that sort of breathability it's just measuring its ability for water to pass through under certain conditions you talked about waterproof ratings so uh this is i think the the, the key thing is to say that you know nothing is actually waterproof um you know with with enough water pressure it will eventually leak. That's why, you know, there are submarines at the bottom of the ocean. I think that um, in terms of waterproof garment, there are sort of levels in which we say that's now waterproof. And that basically comes down to a water column test. So you effectively have a column of water and the rating is the millimetres of water within that column that can sit on the material before it leaks. So waterproof is just sort of an accepted level of, yes, that is now waterproof for mountain biking, walking, whatever you might be doing. Okay. So I think in, in some respects there, we've actually covered off my first question, which was how do waterproof and breathable fabrics work? It's basically a membrane that allows um, moisture vapour to travel through it, depending on a different you know temperature and moisture content. You know, and it'll just transfer it, whichever is the most preferable way for that membrane to do so, at varying degrees of um, capability, depending on uh, presumably how good uh, that membrane might be um, and how well cared for it is. So what are then, you know, I've, I've sort of had this thing where people have complained, oh, my waterproof's not waterproof anymore. And, you know, it's wetting out. And, you know, you're climbing up a big mountain in Scotland in April when it's like 12 degrees out and, and pouring with rain and you're sort of sweating, thinking, oh, my waterproof's not working very well. What are the ideal conditions then for a waterproof fabric to work? Because it sounds like they're not infallible. I'm going to start off on this, but I'm going to go back two steps just to add information so that all the listeners can start to get confused. When we when we talk about a material having tiny holes to let water vapor through, we're generally talking about a million holes per square inch. That's how small right, okay. water vapor is. And the surface tension of water cannot go the other way. Um Tim made a magnificent point early on about if you're if you if you are wet, you cool down super fast. It's actually 38 times faster. 
So if you really want to feel the cold, get wet. And as we all know, but <laughs> I also want to emphasize something to Thomas has said, because I don't think he's championed it enough. There is not a perfect fabric that is both waterproof and breathable or or permeable. The best garment I've ever come across, which is both waterproof and permeable, is an umbrella. The problem is the design does not work on a bicycle. You know, so, so, not, so, not so well. it's all about where are you ready to compromise? Do you, are you prepared to get more perspiration to escape from your body? Are you going to put up a stronger barrier so that the worst conditions get can get in or actually are you going to act like a middle-aged grumpy person like me and not go on really long sportives and I'm only going to cycle for fun so you know I don't need the highest level of protection but Tom back to you you asked the question do you want to re-ask the question and then we'll all pick it up Hmm. okay so the question is what are the um, ideal conditions for a waterproof fabric to work in a way that you would expect a four or £500 jacket, if you're going to spend that much, to actually work? Because we know that they don't always work perfectly because of the aforementioned issues. Um, if I just start on that, the best time is when the outside humidity is really low. Now, if I was standing or in the Himalayas, the outside humidity would be about 30%. Um, so I want a massive difference of the humidity level between the inside of the garment and the outside of the garment. And when I'm producing sweat, I'm producing it as water vapor. If it condenses into water, that would mean 100% saturation. So when I'm producing perspiration, I want a very low outside humidity. The problem is when it rains... <laughs> you don't have a low outside humidity. So the best time to get a membrane to work is actually on a dry day, which is the one day you do not need the membrane to work. Um, And the other point I wanted to make is that if you're cycling around, if you're doing the Bob Graham in the Lake District, thinking, yes, nice, warm, sunny day, you know, I can do this. If you make the mistake of wearing your waterproof jacket as a windproof, You'll find that all membranes do permeate, but they don't permeate as well as other materials. If you do not have a membrane, you will actually get better breathability. So sometimes just having a windshell is a lot more practical for you. So we will talk about different membranes, but always remember to have a windshell and only put on the waterproof when you really need to use a waterproof. But yeah, the perfect condition is to get a membrane to work is when you don't need it to work, which is a dry, sunny day. And make sure that you're as far away from the sea as possible. On a sunny day in the Lake District on the Bob Graham, outside humidity can be 75 to 80%. That's on a sunny day. On a rainy day, in the Lake District, the outside humidity can be 90 to 95%. So sorry to turn all all figures wise, but I hope this illustrates what Thomas alluded to earlier. There is not a perfect material, no matter what the marketing says, how you care for your waterproof, especially your DWR, and how much you realise 
some materials boast a little bit too much about a perfect condition. Okay. Well, you've actually just given me a very nice segue then onto the next question. So if we have environmentally, if everything is perfect and we've got low humidity and it's cold air, you're warm, you're sweating, and maybe you do need a waterproof, maybe it's, I I don't know. We're assuming we're in a situation where a waterproof is a useful thing. Tim, how... Uh, how impactful is the pre-care of your waterproof to making sure it is working properly? Is it okay to pull a waterproof out of the cupboard come October, having it been in there since April? What's going on there? You know, I presume we're talking oils, we're talking dirt. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one because it's almost like t- we're just hearing that you've you've got a, a sunny day, you're actually better not waterproofing your jacket. You're better just cleaning it. Okay. Because that will mean the, the the moisture from the body has its freest route to the outside. Because adding a DWR coating will inhibit a little bit of that? Fractionally. And depending which DWR coating you use, and there are lots of different ones, I mean, I could ex- go to an extreme and say you could put a boot wax on your jacket, you know, it will clog it up. Yes, you've got a fantastic waterproof jacket, but forget the breathability. I'm saying clean it. If you've left it in there and it's a dry day, because that cleaning will get rid of anything apart from anything spiders have left in it and whatever. But it literally is the route to getting the garments functional. Okay. And one of the um, misconceptions of cleaning is that because historically people have wanted to have whiter than white garments, they've cleaned things. And, and actually, the detergents that are made by the major manufacturers are fabulous for cleaning garments, but they leave a residue in there, mm-hmm. which is a water lover, a total water lover. And so it renders your water repellent worse, if not defunct. And in a period of time, if you'd got white garments, people, you hear them throw them away or they've gone grey. Well, that's the buildup of optical brighteners that won't rinse out and literally blocking the, the, the pores and everything in the garment, and it doesn't give you a good surface for water, waterproofing or water repellency. Also, if you use these, these types of cleaners, and it's not particularly for cyclists, but it's just an added impact, if you go out at night, for instance, you you just see a, a person wearing ordinary clothes. Actually, animals would see you like you're wearing a high-vis jacket. It stays in there so much. So if you were bird-watching, in, in, in the US, obviously, it's people going out hunting. They particularly don't want household detergents for that reason as well. Huh, okay. So you, so that's why you're always recommended not to use a household detergent on your waterproofs then? Correct. That's not to say they don't work. They do work, but too well. And so you need to have something that's capable of cleaning and then being rinsed out. Okay. That, that, it's like it's a well, Tom, oh, Sorry, I was just going to jump in and say, um, thinking about the, the household detergents, you also want to consider which items that might you might use on an in-between day where it might not necessarily be raining, but you might want a higher degree of water resistance. Even on a pair of like shorts, it might be that you don't, you don't necessarily need them to keep you dry, but you might not want a lot of mud to stick to them. <laughs> um, so you also want to consider that if you have something that is water loving as sort of that, 
on the you know coating on the fibers it's gonna attract a lot of stuff and i think it's like if you could if you were more willing to wash you know just think of thinking about like the outer layers of you know whatever you're wearing in um well i'll sort of let ting come on to it but basically a soap not a detergent then it it will improve the performance of a lot of the products in the range what we have is an, an interesting scenario because we're dealing with water mainly and let's look at water we know that insects can land on water and it's supported by the surface tension and that surface tension is measured it's virtually the same everywhere on the globe and it takes 73 millinewtons of pressure per square meter to break that and to go into it so if we jump in the water we go through it insects can float on the surface we use that surface tension in the water repellency business so we want the garment to wet out i'm sure a lot of us have gone to a sink and touched a droplet with a bit of detergent washing up liquid whatever and in instantly that it completely breaks the surface tension. And that's what we do with the detergent when we clean, because we want the water to go into the fabric. We want it to help dissolve the dirt. We want to get it to sort of get into any oily stains or whatever so that they can wash out. And yet even so, in a washing machine, you'll see there are three metal bars inside everybody's washing machine. And those are doing what 200 years ago a rock used to do at the side of a river when mm. somebody would go down there with the clothes they'd wet them through and thrash them into a rock well actually that's the thrashing that's taking place inside which is where you've got to be careful you don't overwash things because you can damage them but just get the balance right but actually probably 60 percent of the cleaning action maybe 70 percent is done by that action that, that banging into those rods and so the the art of water repellency has got to start with the cleaning if we don't get the cleaning right we're wasting our time later on and believe it or not when we come to water repellency in actual fact we we sort of get the water to repel the fabric we use that same surface tension we can't have a surface tension in a fabric because it's got holes in it but by coating those tiny fibres and little fronds that stick out from all the pieces of textile, we create a critical surface energy. And it's how we balance that surface energy with the surface tension. So we lower the energy on the fabric to cause the surface tension to stand up like that. And the less we do it, the more of a rounded droplet we get, or more like a football one, which is the most successful one. And everything has a similar sort of action. So, for instance, water 73, grape juice is 63, red wine is 49, and coffee is 41. So there's a series of water-based products that we can repel with a decent DWR. Then when you start getting to oil repellents, it's a slightly different area, and you've got salad oils and ethanols and all sorts of things, like, like well, like blood as well. And so they require a greater repellency, and it's been the toughest task of late because the water repellent treatments that have been known to go onto textiles are 
changing. And it's this change that we need to grasp and harness and make sure that we clean and reproof more regularly. Otherwise, we'll be caught out. Okay. So um, I think you've, you've raised an important part that we are definitely going to talk about, which is these changes in legislation that's happening, because that is going to impact on any future waterproof that anyone who's listening is going to buy, full stop. Um, I did want to sort of quickly ask, though, about um, DWR coatings. Obviously, when I think we're all, or we should all be aware that when you're washing your waterproof garments and your sports garments, as, as Thomas suggests as well, we should be using a, either you know a sports washer or a very simple thing that doesn't fill the membranes with you know all sorts of fancy chemicals that you might want in your bed sheets. Mm. Um, but when it comes to that reproofing of the DWR, which is what you know a lot of people will do um, to make sure that the the garment is beading up so that it doesn't wet out, so that the sweat can release. What's the process of reapplying um, a DWR? What's how does it work? Um, and uh, yeah, what's from from your side of things? Yeah, because the, the, the detergent or the cleaner is doing a completely different job, the two liquids can never meet. They can't be mixed. It's a chemical impossibility. They don't mix. So you have to clean the garment, rinse it to get rid of all residues, and then apply the waterproofing. And one of the things we're unique with at Storm is that in my earliest days of, um, of developing and, and founding the business, I'd been working with a major chemical manufacturer and we noted that the process in the manufacturing operation allowed the heated rollers that take the, te the textiles through the mill, went through a wash bath, dry and then went into a new um, uh, waterproofing bath next to each other and I thought to myself hmm this is interesting so I've worked with them and we've developed it because you can never use exactly the same chemistry and formulation in a manufacturing process where garments can be heated flash heated to 220 degrees you can't do that at home so you have to have a slightly different formulation but I use exactly the same chemistry as used in the manufacturing process and it we put the, the, the cleaner, the wash, into a detergent dispenser or into a ball or however you like to administer it. And we put the, the water repellent into the conditioning compartment. And literally it goes rinse, detergent clean, rinse, proof, and then it's away for, for drying. Okay. And that is a unique system. Interesting. Okay, so, so it means so, you only have one cycle on your washing machine. So instead right. of washing half it, the water, half yeah. half the heat, half everything. So okay. Tom, this is the bit where Charles is really happy to be on this call because Tim sounds more technical than me. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying <laughs> to turn it into common speak so that hopefully the audience can can grasp it a lot easier. Now, if we look at cleaning the bodies. The Romans got it right when they used to cover themselves with oil and the sweat on their body or the dirt on their body would stick to the oil better than it would their skin. At the moment, when we have dirty fabrics, it's because the dirt, whether it's the, sm the dirt in the air of the smog, whether it's our sweat or it's the dirt from the road, sticks to our fabrics. So we put it in a washing machine. And when we put it in a washing machine, we agitate it so we shake the garment. We warm the water. 
and that decreases the bond. But we also put in some form of cleaner. And if you can imagine it like a magnet, the dirt would rather stick to the cleaning solution than it does to the textiles. So that's what happens when we use a washing machine. And I hope I'm not patronizing the listeners to this podcast because <laughs> I've really dropped it down lots of levels. Um, an interesting observation to note we're talking about not using detergent. People think biological is a detergent and non-bio is not a detergent. Incorrect. Non-bio is also a detergent. So we're looking at a pure soap and there's several commercial brands. When I grew up, there was something called Dreft, but there are Omo, I think is a pure soap brand. Tim produces one. There are a couple of others on the market. But what I want to highlight is that Tim started to give some wonderful details about the surface tension of water and what sticks to fabrics. When we start to talk about oils, then he stretched into it and we can talk about sweat. Oils come right down to below 30. They're quite often around mm. 20. To make oil slip off or to make water slip off or to make dirt slip off you need a finish on the fabric which has a surface tension of at least 10 less than the the, the stuff contaminating it so to repel pure water you basically need a finish on your fabric to be around 60 to repel coffee it needs to be 40 but to repel sweat that's to stop sweat sticking to the garment, you're almost, you know, in single figures or around 10. And that element of chemistry, we've grown up in a modern society where everyone thinks, I'll just go to the lab, I'll take out the bad chemical and I'll put in the good chemical and they'll both do the same job. We do not have a chemical good enough right now to replace the bad chemicals that that we've taken out so that will hopefully make it sorry to make your stuff tim on a really basic <laughs> level but i found that people can't get their head around it and i always finish by saying think of your garment like a car even though it's not a car you would not wax your mm. car until after you've washed your car so wash your garments well and then reproof them. Just chucking a layer of wax on a dirty car won't be a good solution for your car. Mm. Okay. Well, so I'm we gonna... need to stop doing that then, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> I think a, a good one that you told me as well, Charles, just on the subject of cleaning, is like, what's the actual state of your washing machine as well? And I know this might be getting into a realm of... <laughs> but... You, you've, okay. you have got to do a service wash on your washing machine every six yeah. months or so because yes. otherwise its effectiveness at cleaning the garments is, you know, it's diminished quite a long way. And that that particularly goes for if you're, you know, if you're putting your bed sheets in and you're using a detergent, there will be a buildup of detergent within the washing machine. So it's important to do a service wash, particularly then if you're then going to use a soap and wash your, you know, beloved technical, you know, cycling garments in the in the machine afterwards because the effectiveness of the clean will be reduced. Um, if you... Yes. Even, even just taking the dispenser drawer out and giving that a good clean is a step in the right direction. 
Yeah, so I, I'm not the best person. You know, regular listeners will probably have noticed that I'm not the best at maintaining anything uh, in my life. But one thing I'm trying to be good at is, you know, before I sort of put my waterproof garments in for a, a proper wash with a, with a tech wash uh, and a reproof, is I do always run like an empty wash beforehand just to sort of clear the systems out uh, mm. uh, and do what I can. Now, Thomas, I know that we're all we're all aching to talk about the changes in legislation, so I'm going to ask about that in about two minutes, but I'm probably going to shock Thomas to the core because when I get back from a muddy bike ride or if I'm in the car park uh, at a, you know, a mountain bike trail centre or something like that, um, I'll pull out my uh, in-van pressure washer uh, and clean my bike, uh, and then I'll take off my muddy clothes, I'll put them onto the floor, uh, and I will pressure wash the dirt off them uh, before I take them home. Is that good enough, or am I am I ruining my? Because uh, sometimes I won't then wash it in the washing machine. Am I ruining my kit like this? Do I have to do a proper wash, or is it okay just to spray the dirt off and just be done with it? I think it depends on what you want from the garment. Um, I think that I mean the thing with pressure washing after um, you know. I remember remember the last time at a uh, trail centre, and it's like put a quid in the machine, pressure wash the bike, pressure wash each other, and then yeah. <laughs> off we go kind of thing. I think my one concern with um, pressure washing a garment is that, um, you know, within mud, which is effectively what you're trying to remove, you've got uh, all kinds of things in there. But the main thing is it's it's not like wildly dissimilar to sandpaper so you're probably doing an amount of damage to the outer layer of the garment which is designed to withstand that kind of stuff um i think pressure washing it you know is it it all depends on the pressure and so on and so forth i think you're probably better off with a bucket and a brush and that might be a bit a bit more laborious and a bit more depressing, but that is probably better. I'd, oh, yeah. I'd maybe maybe there's some like long term tests that could be done on uh, that. I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to send my kit back every now and again for you to test. <laughs> I imagine the um, the bearing manufacturers on my bike uh, company will also say very similar things about my uh, judicious use of pressure washers uh, when <laughs> yeah. I get home from, from bike rides. Okay. I think I mean the, the the main thing is like by removing uh, like the mud, you're going to make the membrane function better. Um, mm. Is is one thing, but I think you know then it it depends because you know. Like washing a load of muddy, muddy kit, it, it is it is a big old job, um, and it's like, you know, if you've got you know trousers, jacket, you know, all of your layers, then you know that is a very full load that you could be doing, you know, very regularly. So I appreciate there's probably not a desire to want to do that, um, you know, all the time. Four um, days a week in February, March, and April for me, it's a nightmare. <laughs> Tom, I'm just going to get through the washing I'm just going to chuck in a couple of things that will make you keener to do the laundry. The first thing All is right. when you install a washing machine, nobody reads the proper thick book of instructions. We either plug in the cold water pipe and the electricity and find out what wash settings to use. Occasionally, we look at the folded bit of A4 that is called quick install. But if you read the manual, it will tell you every 50 washes or so to do this service wash. And the service wash flushes the machine clean. And if you ever kept 
track of these fat bergs, which are in our sewers, you will know that they are fat, they are baby white, and they are excess detergent. Generally, everybody uses too much detergent because it doesn't do any harm. When you have a buildup of detergent, we call it detergent gunk. And if you run your finger through the rubber rim, you can occasionally feel it. Um, that's why we need to clean the machine. But with this little bit of information, Tom, hopefully I'm going to change your habit. If you do a service wash, your washing machine will now last twice as long. Right. So, that is my yeah, job. For I mean, this basically, if you bought your washing machine for 200 quid, if you want to spend 200 quid every couple of years on a washing machine, you're going to keep people really happy. I have not changed my washing machine for over five years because I do a regular service wash. You People with cars know that you need to service them. People with bikes, I mean, who doesn't oil their bearings? You know, we know if we put the love in, <laughs> we get the love back. But I also want to advance what Thomas was saying. Um, Thomas has made a really good point about the strength of the fabrics and the membranes that can be damaged. But also remember, if you're cleaning the garment with a brush or with a hose, you're going to get rid of the dirt. What you won't get rid of is the sweat. And the sweat is actually the bigger contaminant to stopping things functioning. Sweat is, is detritus from your skin. So not only is it perspiration to help you cool down, but it's also the dead skin being ex exfoliated. You don't need to buy a heavy beauty you know, regime. Just go mountain biking and you sweat everything <laughs> out of your skin. Th those little bits of skin have a hassle in that they start to clog the holes and the oil in them starts to contaminate the other parts of the membranes. So yes, clean your garments using a, um, a rinse, using a hose, um, but I wouldn't use a high pressure hose, but also remember to wash them to get rid of the sweat. And it's that sweat, which is the stuff that makes stuff smell. Um, yeah. Cyclists have got so much intelligence, you have championed using wool. The best thing about wool is that it's antibacterial, so it absorbs the sweat. The the smell but we all have cycling socks which we should have washed last week because when we go back to our kit bag and go yeah i can smell what they're saying to me i think gloves are the worst one gloves i think people don't wash gloves anywhere mm -hmm. like as often as thomas <laughs> thomas you're a southerner tim and i are up north we don't use gloves we're well hard <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Okay. Well, let's move on to this um, this legislation that's coming into force very soon, because I, I know it's, it's been raised a couple of times. Um, Charles, what, what's the deal? It's, it's all about PFCs. Yeah. Is PFCs, that right? which are Forever Chemicals, is their nickname. If you watch the movie um, Dark Waters that came out at the start of 2020, it's on Netflix and things like that. It is the true story of how some chemical people formulated a fluorocarbon, whether it was a per or a fluor. It's, it's essentially fluorine chemistry. And fluorine chemistry is this wonderful thing, but it does not break down in the environment. It it's bioaccumulative, so when it goes into our body, it's like mercury. It keeps on building up levels. And it's also carcinogenic. 
um, which means that it causes cancer. Now, I use fluorocarbons the whole while. At the turn of the century, we were using them on non-stick frying pans to stop food from sticking to them. We were using it on the inside of cling film so food wouldn't stick in the bowl. We were using it on contact lens and actually... Uh, Thomas doesn't want to admit this, but we put it into mascara and lipstick as well. So we, the more we learn about the chemistry, the more we realise we shouldn't have been using these chemicals so much. At this stage, the human body is good and it's not really going to kill you early, but it is a toxin in the environment and it's not good. We're not having the most responsible approach to looking after the world. The more toxins that we put in, the faster the collapse of the biodiversity and the natural systems. So it's a good move that the legislation that has been, it was drafted in the early years of last, last decade. So it's taken over 10 years to come into effect. And Initially, all the conversation was about the fluorocarbons, which is their nickname. The fluorocarbons were being used in the DWRs so that water was repelled. What most people didn't realize is to make the holes in a microporous membrane, so that's the really tiny holes that let the water vapor out, we used to stretch the PTFE substrate, the material, and sprinkle fluorocarbons over it. And the fluorocarbons created the holes. And what we're doing is we're taking fluorocarbons away from the manufacturing process. But can I also shout up that the membranes that were microporous that used these chemicals were actually quite stable and inert? Because something Tim said right at the start of the conversation, we use them in heart repair valves. So... There's a lot of bad press around fluorocarbons, and I agree with the bad press, but sometimes when you mix them with the right substrate, they actually become stable and inert. But a rule's a rule, and the world is better for not having fluorocarbons. But just because we've used fluorocarbons in the past, it's not like a slow-burning fuse. Nobody eats a waterproof jacket. You haven't poisoned yourself too much. It's just that we know better practice. So, Tom, to answer your question, European regu regulation coming in, American regulation coming in as well. So the whole world is changing. And the main change is the substrate, the material, the waterproof membrane, which was microporous. We're now creating the holes using a very high-tech stretching method rather than sprinkling on, on chemicals. But we're still trying to put a million tiny holes into a square inch of material. So that, you know, it it's hard work. It's not something that I could do in my lab at at all i need a full-scale plant to do it properly okay so on the face of it though, this this sounds good we're using less pfcs i think it's was pfc6 or something yep. pfc5 all, all those numbers and we're going to pfc0 yep. which means no pfcs so why why is this maybe controversial if we're looking purely at the performance terms because it, it 
feels like the <clears throat> the sort of general feeling I get from outdoor professionals who work in in jackets and things is that PFC Zero, it just simply doesn't work as well. Like an old Gore-Tex jacket from 10, 15 years ago still works really well so long as you've looked after it, as as Tim might describe. It still works, it still breathes, it's still waterproof, it still does all the stuff it should do. I've noticed in recent years, some jackets, they just don't seem to work quite as well. Why, why, why are we seeing this? And is, are we just going to have to live with it and we're going to have to what, develop the technology better? Thomas, is, is that fair? Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. So I think the sort of evolution of this you talked about. So previously it was C eight. So um, it's effectively these are long chain um, chemicals, um, long chain sorry molecules rather, and it went from C eight to C six. So it got a little bit shorter. And it's going to C zero, which is in effect different chemistry. Um, and the point. And this goes back to what Charles is saying about uh, oil resistance. They that effectively product has become uh, less oil resistant, and we've moved. You know, for instance, at Madison, we moved from C eight to C six quite a few years ago. Um, but and there are options for C zero treatments, but. From our point of view, the worry was about the durability of the product. So if you've got a mountain bike jacket and it can take a lot of mud on, a lot of oil, um, you know, even even if it's something as simple as like someone's stopped by the side of the road and they've, you know, had to do something, you know, a quick fix on some part of the bike, they've got something on their fingers and then they've touched their yellow jacket it might be an expensive garment and all of a sudden it, they find it really hard to get that stain out. It's it's a potential, you know, it's a potential concern because it reduces the, um, it, well, it reduces the physical durability of the garment because its performance reduces, but it also reduces the emotional durability of the garment. You know, if it looks ratty after not very long, then that's not very good. Um, so... It's. I think it's a really good thing in that um, you know the legislation's changed. Um, so what that means is that you know for all brands that they will move to a C zero treatment, and it just means that customers need to be wary about how they look after their garments. And also, I think there'll be other things like brands will start choosing different colours for products because <laughs> they might stain a bit more easily. Um, but I think as well, another point that's quite important with all of this is that Charles talked about the changes in the membranes um, and microporous, you know, a membrane with lots of holes is one way to go. There are actually other ways to produce a membrane. And what we've gone for at Madison is um, a hydrophilic membrane. Um, so that's actually a membrane that likes water. Um, so the idea is, and, and actually um, that sounds, it might sound, oh, well, we don't want something that likes water. Well, actually most microporous membranes generally have um a hydrophilic on the back of it as well because what's the advantage of the the hydrophilic is that it it will actually sort of draw moisture out so you get a sort of dry touch kind of feeling it effectively what it does is it actually absorbs the water um and 
again due to the partial pressure you know on one side you know the conditions are warmer and wetter than the other side it it'll, it'll pump it through um so it's the sort of water droplets kind of go along stepping stones of the chemical chains within there and it's a monolith so there are no there are no holes in it anywhere so it actually swells up slightly so on very thin um very thin fabrics you can actually visibly see this if you put water on it um it's you can observe this and we think that that's also quite good for british conditions as well um we think that that's sort of a good way to go for you know like typical days in, out in the uk like what charles said about the lake district is very true but if you think about comfort you know you might have a a metal bike, you know, where if you touch the frame, it's cold. But if you touch the bar tape, it feels, you know, perfectly acceptable. Well, the two things are actually the same temperature. One just has um, a different thermal coefficient. So it's like it feels nicer to touch. And I think, like, that's another reason that we went for the, um, the hydrophilic membrane. And I think that the main consequence of this is that it, you just have to make sure you wash and reproof it um, mm-hmm. to, in order to get the most out of the product. And I think that that's, it's quite good because it's, you know, with, with the fact that it's being legislated, it's sort of a, it's a level playing field really. Okay. And hmm. um, one of the things I would say is that um, going back some years now, um, I remember Leicester University did a research project on cleaning Gore-Tex coats and people just weren't doing it. They were wearing them for years, not days, weeks or whatever, for years. And they believed, according to this survey, they didn't even need to clean them. And so as, as Charles was saying, the detritus builds up and actually your coat doesn't work very efficiently, efficiently at all. And so to do the cleaning and then the re, 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 redo the repellent finish is critical today. We, you know, the, the fluorocarbons, as you've all hinted at, were absolutely sensational. But it's just like jumping in a car that will do a thousand miles and never need refueling. We know with the move to electric cars, all those things, we've got to learn a new way. Mm-hmm. This is the new way. is isn't optional. This is how we've got to learn to do things now. We haven't done in the past. And I think going forward, as technology increases, just like the cars start to go further on a charge, you will find repellency will keep increasing. Yeah, but we may have just taken a little step back in the process. It's a little bump in the road sort of yes. thing. So. And then, okay. well, and then Charles then... comes in to explain it very basic level. <laughs> this time I'm picking on Thomas. Microporous, <laughs> we've explained lots of tiny holes, and Gore-Tex is the best-known microporous membrane. There are others. Hydrophilic, <coughs> I explained to my students, is like having a garden hose in your hand. Water goes through the inside of the hose, but your hand stays dry. So water's going through the inside of the yarns, 
and actually it's like the hose is is filled with a sponge so it gets absorbed through the inside so its breathability figures its permeability figures aren't so good because you've got to allow the time for the absorption because we measure how much comes off on the other side so microporous lots of tiny holes hydrophilic it goes through the inside of the yarn so it feels dry in use and there's a third type called electro spun electro spun uh People will remember Polartech had Neo Shell, but it's no longer on the market. The most popular one at the moment is Future Light, done by North Face. It is more permeable, but it's technically less waterproof. But the ISO, the standard for waterproofing, is Thomas was talking about how much water you can stand on fabric. And to pass the international standard, you only need to pass one meter column of water on fabric. If you don't have, that's a thousand millimeters. If you don't have at least 5,000, where it's on rub parts, like on your knee joints, you will get ingress. So when you're looking for a hydrostatic head or a waterproof rating, look for about 10,000 because all ratings get compromised eventually to half what they are. But to go back to electro spinning, um, I talk to people that's like hairy string, you know, the orange or green agricultural string. Um, and we coat each of the fibers with a really good DWR. So if we only have a couple of layers of string, you can imagine how permeable it is, but water could force its way in. If you were to stand underneath a waterfall or be on the end of a fire hose, to you and me, we wouldn't notice water coming in. But if you want to make it more waterproof, you put on more layers. If you put on more layers, it's harder for the perspiration to escape. So you cut down on the permeability which comes back to that thing it's always a compromise what is most important for cyclists in an aerobic activity i think electro spun or nano spinning membranes are really interesting i have seen the new generation of them where they have changed the coating on the fibers to a non-pfc version I am in the middle of a test rig at the moment and you need long time and it's not a lab test because a lab test we can get really good figures out. I want a bit of cycle oil in there. I want a bit of sweat in there. I want a bit of gravel rash in there to really test whether it's as good as the fluorocarbon version because Tim summed it up brilliantly. Fluorocarbons gave us great durability. It stuck to the fabric really, really well. They had a good time before the fabric became wetted out and they were oil resistant. So we've actually moved from, if we look at the 1960s and the 1970s before we used fluorocarbon finishes, we all used to have much darker, more mold colored garments and we didn't expect them to be so water repellent because the PU had a waterproof coating that was not permeable. We've got used to the luxury of having a fluorine chemistry finish. Now that we're withdrawing it, we've taken half a step back and I have every faith that technology is going to progress. 
but the fluorine chemistry problem first came on my radar in the 90s. It was signaled by the people in Sweden, who are actually the people who've written the EU legislation. And for 30 years, they've been trying to find a solution. The lab techs at Leeds University, possibly the best textiles testing centre in the UK. I know that's controversial, but I like them. They've been trying to do it for 20 years. So it's it's not an easy solution. We're progressing in some areas, but I mean, things like the durability to textiles is actually improving now. Wetting out, we're doing different approaches. And the Demendra chemistry that Stormcare used, sorry to embarrass you, Tim, Demendra chemistry is a different way to how we used to proof garments. And I think it's a more effective way of, of, of how we do it. So it's got longer before wetting out. But oil resistancy right now is garbage. Yes, we're, we're, we're edging towards it, but there no further on than that. And certainly with our chemistry... Everybody thinks of, of these molecular pictures. Well, all ours is is something that splits up into two all the time. And actually, if you chopped it in two, it did look like a snowflake. And so you get an actual water repellency that's quite abrasive resistance because of that depth. You're not breaking through a line of chemistry. You've got this snowflake that sits on the fibres and still lets the air permeate through it. Lovely stuff. Okay, there's there's quite a lot of detail in there, uh, and obviously it's quite um, <clears throat> it's quite a big subject. It turns out <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this isn't quite as simple as I thought it might be. This conversation, but that's fantastic. Um, is there are there any sort of resources online that any of you guys would um, you know signpost our listeners to if they if they want to find out any more? Is there some good resources? There's around? some really good brands. Stormcare is one. The team at Nickwax are really good. And But the main difference everyone can use, it sounds stupid, just wash your garments. What Tim said earlier about Gore-Tex jackets is so true. When we buy a 200-quid jacket, we think it's going to last forever and it's going to be brilliant and all the rest of it. The single biggest way when Gore-Tex gets returns and people say, my jacket no longer works... They just wash it. They just clean it. They don't even reproof it. They just clean away the dirt and the detritus. And people say, it's fantastic. My garment works again. And we're all type of like wandering around going, you know, textiles need a bit of love. They need a, a bit of attention. If you give that to your textile, your textile will reward you with better performance. And, and that's why it's best when you finish the wash cycle you should apply some heat and you can let the garment just drip dry for 15, 20 minutes. So everything just soaks into it, but then apply heat. It doesn't have to be massively high heat, something that's going above 30 degrees. It could be ironing, could be in a, in a, in a warm room or tumble drying. That creates the link. It's like the grab of the hands and it doesn't let the chemical go. Whereas if you just wash it, let it dry, it's a very, very weak bond to the fibre. Okay, so that's probably something that we should just jump onto very quickly before we do wrap up the podcast. But that isn't something that we've talked about much is we've talked about washing it to make sure that, you know, using a proper detergent and looking after everything. We've talked a little bit about reproofing and DWRs and what that all means. But often, you know, like it says on some garments, you know, tumble dry, others you see iron and sort of 
that sort of thing. And that's all about reactivating the DWR. Can, Tim, can you just sort of very quickly talk us again in just in a bit more detail about how that all works and why we should be doing it? Yes, if, if, I mentioned earlier that they 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 flash heat. The, the fabrics. So it isn't the fabric that's going to struggle if you see don't tumble dry and so on. It's something to do with the construction that could fail more likely. Right. So you you do have to pay attention to what people have said. But if somebody just says don't tumble dry, quite often they haven't really researched it through. They're just giving themselves a coverall. It usually has to have the picture of the tumble dryer with the cross on it, and it shows that somebody's looked into that and there is a reason why they don't want to use heat. But I would always use heat, irrespective of what garments say. I would be very gentle with it. But there's, there's the, the sort of the fabric bonds and and I could probably send you something which you could you could put on online which shows how the fabric the chemical bonds to the top of the fabric and then leaves a repellent finish on the opposite side and that's what we're trying to achieve um one thing I, I just to go back a little we haven't mentioned spraying you can spray water repellent treatments um it it's a technical ability to get in an even spray because you've got flaps over pockets and things like that, and quite often people miss those or they don't spray accurately, whereas a wash system gives an even coating. You must always leave enough room in a washing machine for garments to move. You should never ram too many things in, because if they don't move, the liquids won't get round everywhere. As I say, then when you finish the the washing for the water repellent finish, let it just dry on a hanger for 15 to 20 minutes and it's really absorbing everything in the, 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 the chemical just into the fabric. Put it into a tumble dryer, a minimum 20 minutes. If you can do it for 40 minutes, 30 degrees, 30 degrees plus, it gives that bonding and that water repellent. Like you were saying earlier, Charles, you don't even have to waterproof it. Sometimes you can see an improvement in performance through just cleaning. Um, but to do the water repellency is just to be sure because um, I don't know what it's like um, where where Charles is living at the moment, but certainly in Derbyshire we don't uh, we don't know whether it's going to rain or not rain. So we usually go for the let's waterproof it first. So when Charles Excellent. explains yeah. Tim in simpler language, he's he's going to patronise him yet again. Um, <laughs> I actually dry my garments differently. I let them drip dry overnight. Um, so that yeah. they become much drier. Then I put them into the tumble dryer for most probably five minutes at quite a high temperature. Mm. And what we're doing mm. is that we're melting the chemicals so that they stick to the fibres better. And when there's a good adhesion, it becomes a durable water repellent finish. If you just reproof it, as Tim said, in some cases with some of the solutions, you can almost scratch them off. If we, mm. I dry, I dry the garment too much naturally, and then I just finish it in the tumble dryer. And because I'm in Yorkshire and I'm tight, I'll run the tumble dryer for five minutes, and that's just enough heat spark <laughs> to start that. Yeah, melting onto the fibre itself. But, yeah. The, the, you, you, you are right. The, the, the hotter it is, the better. But I know quite a lot of manufacturers yeah. worry about too much heat into the textile. They do. But it, that heat is the one that makes the bond. I guess that's a similar thing to giving it a quick yeah. iron, maybe between a tea towel. That's yes. a, a similar process. Through a tea, through a tea but towel. But that takes yep. me too long. 
That's why I chuck it. And I yes. own a tumble dryer. Yes. I'm middle-aged. I'm married. I now have a family, so we own a tumble dryer. Right. I live on my own and I've got a tumble dryer. It's uh, mostly because I'm lazy. Have you got your address, Charles? I'll come up with my washing. <laughs> I, think, I think, Tom, you asked about um, resources. I think um, this is one that I, cause I, I find this quite interesting because it's like, in my opinion, um, there's there are resources out there. There are sort of... Um, I think I think that, I mean there are a lot of experts out there as well, sort of thing. Um, but often they're not necessarily talking about cycling. Um, and I think you know it's interesting when we talk about if you want, like Charles said, if you want a waterproof garment, you want a ten thousand hydrostatic head. That's a sort of good level. And you know I'd agree with that completely. But I also think as well, like there's a consideration for do you how how waterproof do you actually want to be compared to like how breathable do you want your sort of system to be? And you know I always think it's interesting that you know even in our sort of sales data, we've got um, you know if we have a waterproof garment and we have just a, a sort of showerproof garment. I think for the UK, the showerproof garment is probably actually a, a better product for most of the year, just in that it is more breathable because there is no membrane in there. Um, it's pa- more packable because it's generally there's less bulk. Mm. Um, and it's probably like it's a bit bit more easy to wear. And I think in terms of like actually when you look at, you sort of activity, you know, on a ride, you know, and whether that's, you know, on the road or um, on a mountain bike, you know, if you're going uphill, you're working really, really hard. So people are often like undoing zips, they're doing things like yeah. that, even if it's raining, because they don't mind getting wet. Um, and I think that it has to, you have to just balance it all up, you know, because if you're on an e-bike and you're commuting for 15 minutes and it's, in the winter, you could honestly probably just wear a puffer jacket and a bin liner because you're not going to generate enough heat as you, the rider, you know, it's probably not going to last you that long, but it's, you're just keeping the water off. You're just keeping the worst off. And, you know, even if you say DWR'd your um, synthetically insulated puffer jacket, you know, then you'd be, you'd probably be like, not far off where you needed to be you know the the issue comes when you know you've got you know all the grub from the road and all you know all of that I think it's like you probably do actually want a jacket but it's just like I think there's other ways to sort of think about it you know Mm. how how hot are you going to get how sweaty are you going to get and how hot and sweaty are you going to get at different points in the ride because if you get to the top of a hill and you're really sweaty and then you go down the hill on the other side, but you don't have enough sort of insulation there, you're going to get really cold. So it's almost like, what you know, how, how, are, how are you going to perform? And I think as well, like, people talk about, like, athletes getting very, very sweaty, but it's like, if I've not done any exercise for quite a long time, you know, I'll sweat loads, even if I'm not doing something particularly strenuous, you know, Um like just getting the bike out of the shed could be, <laughs> but it's, I think it's just like worth thinking about how, you know, like how do you feel on the ride, you know? And yeah. Have you undone the zip on your waterproof jacket? 
during a ride, then you probably want to consider, you know, mixing up what products you're going to use or what layers you're going to use. Well, this kind of leads me on to, let's say, a, a final. There's so much we can talk. I mean, we could probably do like a, a four hour epic on this. And I'd be like, I, I genuinely find waterproofs and like performance clothing like one of my it's one of my favorite things you know when i'm testing bikes products kit all the time one of the things i really love testing and, and getting involved with and getting my hands on is technical clothing whether it's waterproof jackets or jerseys or shoes or helmets sorts of things it, i find it really fascinating one of the areas that i know sort of has come up in conversations that i've had with a, a couple of you before you know we've done this podcast is is the soft shell so maybe just for a couple of minutes before we sort of all sign off and and let you all get back to your evenings can we talk about, you know, soft shells are great. <laughs> you know, Charles, I know that we sort of very briefly talked about it on the phone last week. You're a big Soft fan. shells in the UK are brilliant. I think hopefully the audience to this podcast realise there is not a simple solution. It's made twice as bad because cycling is an aerobic activity. We build up more sweat than most other activities. So... To me, I'm a purist. To me, a soft shell is a windproof layer with a little bit of insulation. So it's a windshell with a light fleece or some combination of it. There are some marvellous brands like Buffalo that have the aesthetics which don't really meet where you want to be seen. But they work superbly well. The one reason why I like soft shells more than anything else is that if you do come off your bike, if you do wear out bits, you repair it with a needle and thread because there's no fancy membrane. There are a lot of soft shells that are membranes. I'm a purist. I don't consider them to be a real soft shell. Um, but if you have a non-membraned uh, soft shell... I'm using a buffalo top still from the 1980s and it is still working. You know, it's it's absolutely great. It's got some nice patches where I've ripped it and I've repaired it, but I couldn't care about the vanity. I don't want to be seen in a brand new. So if I was to wrap this up, I would say, or wrap up the Charles bit, there is not a perfect material. I am now middle-aged and grumpy I don't go out in the worst conditions. So a soft shell in the UK meets all my requirements and it's a little bit cheaper. Okay. Yeah, I have to say that I have one, two jackets that stand out in my time. One was a Polar Tech Neo Shell jacket I had uh, probably seven years ago. Honestly, I just think it's the best fabric I've ever used in a, in a waterproof sense so far. Um, and the other was is a, a jacket which has multiple panels, some of which are a traditional waterproof fabric, you know, namely sort of on the top of the arms, on the back, and on top of the chest, and then one, and then it blended with a more soft shell stretchy material, which really boosted the breathability, so that it didn't feel so clammy on the inside. It had lent plenty of stretch and it fitted really nicely. Um, and that, you know, again, a really interesting sort of jacket to get involved with. Uh, it's what out. we call a half and half jacket. That's the technical thing. But Thomas, to you, what would you say to wrap <laughs> this bit? I th yeah, I think I think like the on on this particular topic, I think it's. I mean, it, I do think you're right with that, Tom. It is interesting, like combining materials. I think, I mean, sometimes there can be like durability issues uh, in the long term, um, which is why generally, from a product point of view, I'm sort of a fan of it. If it is one material, but it's 
one really good material. So I think that the days where people would put in a panel to make it stretch, I think that's sort of nonsense now. There are really good, really stretchy fabrics out there. Um, I think that there are more inventive ways to sort of achieve waterproofing and like think about where you need to be waterproof. And I think like a product that we launched last year, the bib trousers, was probably a good example of that where there are some days where you don't need to actually wear a jacket. You just need to sort of be covered up your back. And I think that that, from my point of view, is like an example of that kind of product where you want the breathability of just having a jersey on, but you want the coverage from having, you know, like basically a big waterproof panel up your back you know, for mountain bike. Yeah, we've just, um, the that bib trouser, it was a, one of my gear of the year for 2023. Um, it's been nonstop being worn by myself. A colleague is just wrapping up his review of it, which will be on Bike Radar very soon. Um, and uh, I know that he's a fan. So um, yeah, very much agreed. Right. Have I you decided I'm, jersey over or jersey under? You, I'm a jersey over though. <laughs> He's gone jersey under. So um, a, mix, a mix. If I can just interject, just to show you how wide the market is, because about three years ago, I wasn't very well. And um, I, I have developed a breathing issue, which I haven't I've had all my life. I ended up having a heart attack. So it's, it's, it's a tough change, but um, an e-bike found its way into the, mm. into the garage at home. And uh, I go out on that, and the the the, uh, the local guys from Matlock Cycling Cup will take me out, and I'll do thirty odd miles. Um, but I'm not as energetic as the next man because I've got the assistance. So my generation of um, of, of moisture is not the same as a person who 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 maybe just cycling in a normal bike, and as a consequence of that. I will wear different clothing. I will need to keep warmer because I'm not trying as hard, but I also, because of my health situation, I don't want to get cold either. So there's always going to be a slight variation as to what people wear. Absolutely, yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, there's there's plenty of amazing bits of kit out there. And obviously, as we've discussed, you know, make sure you're look looking after it so that it continues to perform well into the future. I think we will wrap it up there because um, I've taken all of your time up. Um, and, I, you know, again, it's very, really, very much appreciated. And I'm sure there's there's actually a lot more questions that I sort of did want to ask, but maybe it's uh, one for another podcast down the line. Um, but for now, I'll say thank you ever so much uh, for contributing towards it. Uh, and thank you, everyone at home, for listening uh, to this episode of the Bike Radar podcast. Of course, if you've got any questions or comments, you can email us uh, podcast at bikeradar.com. So all it remains is to say thank you ever so much to Charles, our self-confessed textile geek, uh, Tim Wilson from Storm. Care and uh, Thomas Plummer from uh, Madison Clothing. So thanks ever so much for, for being here uh, and thank you everyone to listening. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 